Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. The following recording is from our Sunday morning gathering. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. I want to begin uh, in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm going to start with verse 1. We're going to read the first nine verses. Verse 1 says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and, come, and coming together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry." For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I hold strongly to the fact that the gospel is for every person. I hold strongly to the fact that the church exists not for one person's preference, not for one person's comfort, but it exists for all peoples, regardless of your uh, cultural background, your history, whatever. It's, it exists for everyone. And the reason, and hear me correctly, this isn't to say like we all get a say, the reason is that, that we serve a God who is the master. He's the wise one. He's the able one. And it, and it matters what he thinks, not what I think, not what you think, those kinds of things. And that's why it exists for everyone, because he has invited everyone to his banquet table. The design and the structure of the rule of life for a Christian doesn't bend to what we like, but it bends to the will of the Lord. Now, part of this is also the content of the scripture, I believe that the entire library of the scripture exists for all people. And stemming from that, the message of Jesus's church is for all people. Now, what that looks like, I believe, is that if you go to a weekly gathering of a church that claims to love Jesus and believe the Bible, that you would hear a message that speaks to the reality that you live in. That you can't just come to church and be like, that has nothing to do with me and walk away unaffected. I, I believe that very strongly, and that exists with very, very few exceptions, if any. And so even passages like this, I always like to start with the teaching text so we kind of know where we're going, and once we start getting towards the end, you'll be like, oh, we're almost done. Um, but even with passages like this, I don't want to feel like, oh, man, I should have stayed home. <laughs> I should have gone skiing. This has nothing to do with me. I believe that we are all included in this section. And as we've been going through, I didn't, like, if you haven't been here in a while, I didn't pick this passage to start with this morning. We've been going through verse by verse every section of 1 Corinthians. And so far, it's been not without confrontation, but it's not confrontation without cause. Does that make sense? So I'll probably say it again uh, before we end. The point of this message is not to be graphic. There's, a, like, if you are listening to this with, with teenagers, uh, there's no point that you'll have to cover their ears. Um, but I think we're, we're pretty clear. I think our, our teenage bringers didn't come this morning. 
but uh, there's always questions, you know, like, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing if you have some questions on the way home. But, uh, but I believe that uh, in this is the word of life. I believe in this is, is the good gospel from the great king. And so another quick thing before we start formally unpacking this text of scripture is I want to, um, on the onset, identify terms, what, I, what I'm referring to here when we say married and when we say single. I believe that there's not really a way that we could divide this or parse it in a different sort of manner. Being married is this legally recognized um, spiritual covenant between one man and one woman. That is what marriage is very clearly in the scripture. And so being single is, is anything outside of that. So even if you're like in a long-term boyfriend-girlfriend sort of situation, that is still not married. Does that make sense? And so when we're referring to these things, I don't want you to get confused at what point we are discussing. So let's begin in verse 1. We get some evidence of some prior correspondence between uh, the Corinthian church and uh, all the apostles who wrote this letter. It says in verse 1, Now concerning the things which you wrote... It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, we've known this already in the context of this letter that um, there have been letters, uh, probably multiple letters that have been written to Paul saying, we're in trouble, we need help. (laughs) Here's some questions that we have. Here's some situations that we're running into. Here's some things that we're dealing with. Could you tell us what to do? Like, um, as as a spiritual leader, as one with authority, help us with this. And this helps us to frame how we read and understand letters, this letter and letters like this, that they were meant for mass distribution. So the fact that they were written for a specific purpose is not to say like, again, this doesn't, this isn't about me. This doesn't have anything to do with me. They were meant for a specific purpose, which will be, which will matter quite a bit this morning. But also they were meant to be truth for all people. They were meant to be shared with other churches, with other communities. So that way people could all glean from the wisdom of the Lord that the apostle carried. Now, it's been a while since we were in uh, chapter 6, but if we review that, we can see that there is this sort of outright condemnation of sexual immorality, saying this has no place in the life of a, of a person who claims to follow Jesus. And the way that we defined sexual immorality, the way that we believe the scripture defines sexual immorality, is any sort of sexual act outside of the marriage covenant between one man and one woman. And so um, the basis for this condemnation, the basis for saying this has no place in your life, is to say that you have been purchased by God through Jesus on the cross, and that you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you are a sacred space meant for God's purposes. Now, being the Spirit's temple is much more than like sexual purity or chastity. There's a lot more to that than just those things. But again, we are looking at a very specific section here. And I don't think we are immune from this pressure that was pressing on the church in Corinth. I think this is something very real to us today. I think this was something very real to them back then. Now, the real shocker of chapter 7 is that our problem has completely flip-flopped. Where in chapter 6, they were giving themselves to immorality, sleeping with temple prostitutes, sleeping with people that weren't their husbands and wives. But here in chapter 7, we see a completely different issue. Um, I like the way Professor N.T. Wright uh, talks about this in his commentary. He says this, In the first discussion, beginning with this passage, it's a good example. As often happens, when some in the church were all for casting off moral restraint altogether, that's in chapter 6, others were all for moral severity. 
in line with some of the well-known philosophies of the time, they were urging people either to celibacy or if already married, to abstain from sexual relations within marriage. Some teachers strongly maintain that this was the way to new depths of personal holiness and spiritual maturity. So they quoted, again, another slogan, which Paul comments on, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now the phrase, not to touch, is, is the correct rendering. That's not like a, a prude translation, but Paul is being polite. <laughs> I think we can all, with our imaginations, go to where what he's saying. Um, but I think this is, this is interesting, what is going on within the church. So I want to zoom out for a second and look at the historical context that kind of helps us understand how they're arriving at these strange sort of conclusions. So there have been these stems of Gnostic philosophy that have kind of crept into the church in these early ages. Um, either they've crept in or they're left over, you know, like, like you're uh, a Christian saved from something and there's still a little bit of that dirt from the world on you. And so you say weird things and you do weird things and, and the Lord is, is sanctifying you. So we're going to see two major schools of thought. If you could put those words on the screen for me, Mia. <coughs> so these stems of Gnosticism is one, the antinomians, and two, the Essenes. It's not super important for you to remember those names, but I thought it would be good for you to see them. But what's, what is important is for you to understand what they stood for. Largely what was going on for both of these parties as they stemmed from the same base philosophy is a rank misunderstanding and misrepresenting of the role of the spirit and the role of the body. So both of these philosophies come from a, a system of Gnosticism that says all matter and all physical things are bad. Actually, if you're interested, this is where the root of saying grace before eating comes from. That it's not a bad thing to pray and bless your food, but to ask for grace before eating is people that came from like, I'm about to enjoy food and I need to ask for God's forgiveness ahead of time because I'm about to enjoy this. And, and for most of us in this room, you could be like, well, that's twisted. That's, that's weird. Why would, you, why would you do that? But it's coming from this idea that like physical things are inherently bad. Therefore, we need to define the role of the spirit differently than we would either way. Now, the way these two philosophies go about it is completely different. We see the antinomians in chapter 6 are people that are like, the spirit is so independent of the body. What you do with your body doesn't matter. <coughs> Nick quoted a, a really tragic strange uh, uh, historical quote a couple uh, weeks ago about a Roman official and a historian who said that your, your wives are for bearing legitimate children, but you have prostitutes and slaves for pleasure and release. And it's like, this is twisted. This is dark and, and disturbing. But it's the same philosophy. Like, those, those dirty things are just part of living in this life. So you just take care of them outside. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and the Essenes, or sometimes you'll see the ascetics, did the opposite thing. Where it's like, these things are so impure that even getting married is bad. Because it's just leading you into more temptation and more um, pleasure. I'm just going to take a drink really fast. <coughs> I had the pleasure of leading worship every night this week. And then leading worship this morning, and then teaching this morning, which is my choice. I decided to do it. Don't blame anybody else. But I'm feeling it now. So, 
So these, um, the Essenes or the ascetics are reacting to sort of the casting off of moral restraint by, like, by uh, employing greater severity of restriction. Restrictions that the Lord never called to, the restrictions that are um, unbiblical and that Paul is addressing. Verse 2 says this, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Now, as we continue to go on, this will be further clarified. But this does seem to frame marriage in a strange way. It sounds like because of immoralities means like marriage only exists because you guys have no self-control. And I assure you that's not what Paul is saying. <coughs> and also, in the same passage, Paul seems to imply that uh, everyone gets married. And I assure you that's not what he's saying either. The further we read, we realize that Paul is actually saying that the reason that marriage exists is not to protect your purity, but it does have a practical benefit in that regard. And as Paul goes on in other places and other places that we read in the New Testament and throughout the scripture, there is a much more robust image of what marriage is that is painted. I myself, along with uh, several other pastors, we use Paul's writing in Ephesians 5 to officiate marriage ceremonies. <clears throat> so if you ask me to officiate your wedding, that's where I'll go. Because what Paul does is he paints this glorious picture of honor and love and dignity and mutual submission within uh, marriage that is not just in itself a good thing, but it reflects Christ and his relationship with the church. And it gives so much context to this mystery of why people do this thing. So Paul is not a woman hater. Paul is not a marriage hater, but he is addressing something very specific. And I also want to point out here that it says each man has a wife and each woman has a, a husband. Uh, many have assumed that this means that everybody gets married, but we'll find out very quickly in what Paul is talking about that that's not what that means. It is just saying that you are supposed to have one wife and you're supposed to have one husband. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's look at what Paul is dealing with. Let's go at verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement, for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this by way of concession, not of command. So, someone in the church, probably several someones, have been advocating don't get married, or if you are married, God forbid, don't have sex. And I, I was talking through this with Shelby, and she's like, how do I expect to have more people up here? You know, like, that's like, you're, you're cutting out a major part of, of our sort of cycle of, of people being born. And I think the reality is, what Paul's referring to here is like, if you want to take a break from your normal duties to one another for prayer, that's fine. And, and I picture like, hey, you're going to go to the, the, the ladies' prayer meeting and I'm going to go to the man's prayer meeting and we'll maybe meet back after the weekend or something like that. But uh, they're doing it the opposite, where it's like, I know we have to bear children, so we'll just come together once in a great while for that. But otherwise, we're, we're depriving each other of that natural sort of release. And so someone has been advocating this, not based on like, hey, here's a wild idea. What if we didn't sleep together? 
But they're saying this is where this is what purity means. If we if we just avoid these sort of activities altogether, we'll be more holy. And Paul says, no, that's not how it works. This is interesting for a lot of reasons. One reason is that we know that Paul himself is celibate, that he is ascetic. And you assume that he'd side with the ascetics and be like, heck yeah, cut that gross stuff out. I don't even want to talk about these things. <laughs> but fortunately, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, un- inspired by the Holy Spirit, understands a glorious theology of the body that comes from the scripture, that you are not just a spirit who happens to have a body. Do you know that in the last days we will be resurrected? That is to say that we will have forms like Jesus's form, similar to what we're walking in today. When, we, when he appears, we'll appear with him, that we won't just be floating in a fishbowl of other weird spirits or something like that. We'll be together in the New Jerusalem in physical forms. God made the body with desires, and God gave appropriate and healthy ways to walk out those desires that honor him. So if you are married, don't hear today that marriage is a bad thing. And Paul is also expressing this amazing mutuality that is actually pretty groundbreaking for his culture that exists within Christian marriage. Can Can you notice that he starts with husbands fulfilling the duty to their wife? That's the way it appears in the Greek as he begins, like, husbands, you need to serve your wife's bodily needs. Isn't that wild? Where if, if you were to take a glance, and, and if you're, like, weak or conscious, don't even take a glance at Roman sex, Roman sex ethic, because it's dark, you guys. And the double standard is firmly in place where men are allowed to do a lot of things that women are expected not to. And, and it's pretty severe. And so what Paul is, is calling for is this, is this exclusive marriage where a man serves his wife physically. And it's also where the woman serves her husband physically. And he gives this, this intense statement that your body does not belong to you. Your body belongs to the person you made this covenant with. And what we have to understand is inevitably, if it was one person or the other that was in charge of this control, abuse would ensue. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. This is what we're going to do because that's what the Bible says. But that's not what it says. It says, in fact, that you belong to one another. And so this mutual submission demands listening and understanding and caring. And I think this has been misinterpreted and misrepresented in other places um, by people who want to advance their own physical carnal agendas. But what is happening here is amazing mutual Submission predicated on listening and understanding. And Paul closes this section on married people saying that if you choose not to have sex for a time, make it short. And and his reasoning is the longer you put this off, the more tempted you're going to be to fulfill those needs somewhere else. And it can't be instituted by one person either. He says, by an agreement, decide. So it can't just be like, you know what, I think I'm going to devote some time to prayer, so you go eat a whole raw potato and, and deal with your feelings. It's like, no, it has to be a mutual agreement. There was an article that Babylon Bee put out years and years ago where it was this, uh, it was this couple who were homeschooled and, and Christian, and they had just gotten married, and they're like, you know, abstinence is so good before marriage. It must be even better after marriage. And so it, it, if you guys know Babylon Bee, it's all satirical. It's not real. No, nobody said this. But it, like the, the sort of camera, so to speak, turns to the man, and, he, and they're like, how do you deal with this sort of 
discipline. He's like, well, whenever I start getting bedroom thoughts, uh, I just eat a whole raw potato. And it usually just calms me right down. Uh, Pastor Nate told me to share that story, so I included it in. Now, within this, this idea of Christian marriage, I understand completely that there's a lot more nuance to this. There's a lot more history in every individual relationship. As many couples as there are, there's probably as many variations on how we respond and deal with these sort of things. But what Paul is laying out here is a healthy baseline for what Christian sexuality is supposed to be. And, and I don't pretend like this isn't a shameful or a difficult thing to talk about. Um, and, and I think when you're in that place and you feel maybe a little stuck, it's a hard thing to ask for help in because it is, for all intents and purposes, private. But I just want you to know that there, is, there are channels that exist between brothers and sisters in the church. Now, we're not just trying to like hear your dirty laundry and, and gossip about you, but it's like if you need help, ask for help. You don't have to face this alone. The Lord is, is extending his hand to you to help you experience freedom and life in this. So let's talk about singleness. Stemming from the same motive that was leading to people who are married abstaining was another question relating to verse 1. If you remember this sort of slogan, we saw slogans like this in uh, chapter 6 as well. But this slogan was, it's, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, what Paul says is really interesting. If we look at verses 6 and 7, he says, I say all this to you by way of concession, not of command. Now, this is fascinating because um, in Scripture, we, we wholeheartedly believe, it's, it's our first statement in our doctrinal statement, that every word of the Scripture is inspired by God and it is useful. It is profitable for teaching and correcting and, and growing. But what Paul is saying here is, this is my opinion. So it's like, what do we do with this? You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's authoritative, but he's also admitting this is not the command of the Lord for you. This is, this is my personal advice. I like it. Uh, there was a, a pope in the 6th century named Gregory the Great, which if you're going to pick a pope name, that's a great name. Gregory the Great was uh, writing to uh, Augustine of Canterbury, and he was talking about these sort of conflicts that they were having with bishops. And he said, it is so bad when people take an air of certainty where certainty is not meant to be had. So Paul is not saying for every situation that can ever exist, this is exactly one, two, three, what you need to do. He's saying, this is from my experience what I find to be profitable and helpful. And I want to be clear, when Paul is offering his concession, that's very different than me offering my concession or any of us for that matter, because Paul is very knowledgeable. He's very led by the Spirit. He's obviously inspired and, and, and authoritative in this sense, and he has a lot of experience in life. And likely, and this is interesting, this was interesting to me in, in studying this and, and going into this, likely Paul was from a uniquely informed position. Because most scholars, based on this chapter and the way that he writes about married, unmarried, these kinds of things, the way that the language that he uses, they, don't, they know that he's celibate. That's very clear but they don't think it was voluntary. Most people have subscribed to in, in like the academic world that Paul is likely a widower, that his wife has passed away or she left him when he became a Christian based on the way that he talks about these sort of things. So it's not that he wanted to be celibate necessarily, 
that we believe that he was put into this sort of life and he is uh, informing us through that place. Now, Paul says that he wishes people would just be single, um, but let's read verse 7 the way that he says that. I didn't read it earlier. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So Paul says that it's, it's just a good idea to be single, to stay single, and to remain in that place. But each man has his own gift from God. And that's actually what I've titled this message, is Gift from God, because I believe this is a major point that Paul is emphasizing here that we need to draw from um, in, this, in this section in particular. He says in verse 7 that each man has his own gift, one in this manner, one in that. Now, if you get your theology from TikTok and the wise theologians of TikTok, they will say to you that this means that everyone has a soulmate, that everyone has someone that God picked out and built for them. And your response as a single Christian is to write letters to that person. You're supposed to make character sheets full of, of deal-breaking requirements for them. Just, just they have to be 6'5", they have to be... They have to make $150,000 a year at least. Uh, I did youth ministry for a long time, so this is near and dear to my heart. Um, that's not what this passage is saying. Not even kind of. It makes zero sense within the context. I'm not saying that if you, if you have a boyfriend list in the back of your Bible right now that you need to repent, but maybe you do. Um, <laughs> look into the middle section in particular. No. Uh, I'm only joking. No, I, I would venture to say that that's kind of the opposite of what Paul is saying. That what Paul is actually venturing to say here in the context and within the teaching of the Bible is that there are two categories of gifts in this regard that he represents with this manner and that, and that is marriage and singleness. He calls them gifts. Can you believe it? Now, many who are single, whether it was voluntary or not, don't feel like singleness is a gift. And a lot of times the church isn't very helpful with this. And I will, I will admit to that. I myself have a discriminatory life group that is only for people who are married. <laughs> and it's like, and, and it was on purpose. I, I understand that there's single people within our fellowship. I understand that there's divorced people in our fellowship. There's people that are, that are uh, unmarried completely. I understand that sort of thing. Um, but again, we kind of draw this line between people who are casually dating and people who have made a, a, a like a, legal covenant before the Lord and before the state. And I, I know that others may feel the same way about marriage, that it doesn't feel like a gift. There are people who are stuck in unhappy marriages. There are people that are stuck in, in uh, situations that they wouldn't have chosen if they would have been in, in a better state of mind when they made that decision. But I think what this, what this takes us to, what this challenges us to, is to return to what Paul was talking about in chapter 6, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. When you are saved by Jesus Christ, you have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, that does not matter what circumstance you find your life in. It's not, I will be the temple of the Holy Spirit when I get that, that babe that I wrote about in my journal. It's not, I will be the temple of the Holy Spirit when, when I get everything that I need, that I think I need. It is saying, when Jesus saves me, there was nothing good about me, and he's rescuing me to a new life. 
He's rescuing me where the thief would come to steal, kill, and destroy. He's rescuing me to life to its fullest. It doesn't matter what my circumstances are. But as we, as we look at this, the close of this section, where we talk about marriage and singleness, look at verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, if we take a moment to consider Paul's advice logically. Logically, this makes sense. It's like, in your church, there's a lot of sexual temptations, a lot of confusion, a lot of problems. So it might just be worth it to not deal with that at all. You know? I have time and time again given this advice based around alcohol, where it's like, I myself don't drink. Um, and people, uh, especially younger people, will be like, I just don't know what I'm going to do when I turn 21. I'm not just, just don't do it. It's like, well, shouldn't I think about it more? It's like, why? It's like, if it's honestly bothering you this much, like, just don't do it. And then you won't have to deal with it at all. I mean, that makes sense. But then when it's talking about, like, your future, <laughs> it's talking about getting married. It's like, it, it's better for you to not have to try and figure this out again. If you just decide, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to give myself to the Lord. And it's unique in this time of history because that's how they preferred their future. That's how they, they guaranteed their assets. That's how they did these things is by getting married and having legitimate children. But what, what Paul is saying in between the lines is like, the church will take care of you. If you're a widow and you don't have a husband, the church will take care of you. If you're a widower or a single man and you're trying to serve the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you don't know how to do that by also serving a wife, the church will help you. They'll be around you for these sort of situations that you don't have to make this decision in haste. You don't have to make this decision without wisdom. This is something that you can just abstain from forever. And then Paul says this crazy thing. The idea of burning with passion, uh, some translations just say burning, which feels bad. It feels like hell, doesn't it? And to say that there's weakness and lack of self-control feels unacceptable to many American, I'm the best sort of mindsets. But I would challenge you, I'm not going to do some gymnastics to tell you this verse says something that it doesn't. But I would challenge you that accepting your limitations and your weaknesses is not rendered weakness. That's wisdom. That's actually strength to say, I can't. So often the demands and the prohibitions of the scripture can feel people, can leave people feeling torn down. That's a lot of the reason that people leave the church. There's a lot of reasons that people that are my age leave the church. I can't do this. You're always telling me what I'm not supposed to do. You're always telling me what I can't do, what I must do and what I can't do. I would invite you today to allow yourself to be torn down. Allow to, just for, just for, the next 15 minutes or so to allow yourself to suspend the belief that you're awesome and strong and capable and allow yourself to become a child in the arms of your father who sees everything, the end from the beginning, and can tell you how to live. That I'm sure at some point in our lives we've all realized that that thing that our parents always harped on, they kind of knew what they were talking about. 
Not all the time. I'm not trying to like, let everybody's parents off the hook. Sometimes parents say stupid things to just prove a point. But we can look at this with the Lord and realize, I don't know what's best for me. Whether it's to be single or whether it's to be married or whether it's to uh, go slow or whether it's to make decisions, I, I don't know what's best for me. But I, I want to trust that Jesus does. Because no wise person would ever tell a person who is an addict that they have to engage in their addiction to prove their liberty. That's not wisdom. The Bible would call that foolishness. That if you've been set free, you don't just keep going back to the thing that gets you in bondage. You walk in freedom. And I understand that a lot of people, I, I, I mean, I have a married life group, you guys. I've heard like a lot of stories of how people have gotten married in this church and a lot of times, there's this narrative of romance. There's this narrative of, of, dare I say, providence, that it feels like, oh, God meant for this to happen. And inevitably, especially in, in my little living room around chicken noodle soup, there's people who don't have that story. They're like, I wish I could color this in a better way, but th that's not what happened. One commentator I read this week said this, Neither state, the wedded or the unwedded, is in itself more holy than the other. I'll read that again. Neither state, the wedded or the unwedded, is in itself more holy than the other. Each has its own honor and loveliness, and each can only be judged in connection with its surrounding circumstances. What, what he's getting out there is this idea that you can be married and not be glorifying God. That your marriage is actually sinful in God's eyes. And you can be single and not be glorifying God. That your singleness is, is sinful to God. And, and Paul says, when you sin against someone sexually, you don't just sin against them, you don't just sin against God, you sin against yourself. On the flip side, you can be married and you can glorify the Lord. No matter what these generations of, of monks would say, you can be married and glorify the Lord. Also, you can be single and glorify the Lord. And I, I say maybe capital S single, like long time single. I like a season of singleness, whatever that is, ill-defined. So if you're married, it's a gift from the Lord. If you're single, that may be temporary or not. But don't count the idea that it isn't a gift from the Lord. And what, the, what uh, Frederick in that quote said, he, he's saying that it can only be judged by its outward circumstances. So it's not just merely the act of getting married that makes you holy. It's how you operate as a married person. And it's not just the act of being single that can make you holy. It's, it's what you do in your singleness that makes you holy. Now, as I, as I started with, the church uh, consists of people from all kinds of backgrounds and walks of life and circumstances. And as we go on in 1 Corinthians 7, um, Paul will go to... Um, 
addressing some of these specific scenarios, <coughs> such as uh, and uh, somebody who is following Jesus who their spouse isn't. Um, but I believe that there, there's space for us at the table in as much as we'll be willing to follow Jesus. Because the, the gift of salvation was absolutely free to us, and we can praise the Lord for that. We talked about the epiphany during worship, that, that to all peoples the gospel has been extended, and we celebrate in that. But that means we're all invited to the same rule of life. We're all invited to the same walk of life that is to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the church will and ought to look like a salad bowl of different components. People from different lives, people from different histories. But I believe that we're all called to the same purpose, and that's for the Lord's glory, that we were all created and we were all saved for that same reason. So to close this morning, I just want to read again from 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 18. And I want to pray together this morning. Verse 18 says this, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Verse 20 says, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So I want to pray for us this morning. I want to include time to uh, pray for individuals um, as we just ask the Lord for help, you know? And it doesn't have to be me that prays for you. If you, if you, uh, I believe there's great power in confessing your sin to a brother and sister. It doesn't have to be me. I understand that that can be awkward. But I want to pray for us that we could glorify God in our bodies. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to find more of our messages, get connected with our church, or partner with us financially, you can find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Thanks again, and have a blessed week.